This is the Better Reading Podcast platform with stories behind the story, Jane's Be Better Podcast, my book chat with Caroline Overington and more. Looking for a particular podcast? Remember, you can always skip to it. Welcome to the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story, brought to you by Belinda Audio. Listen to Belinda Audiobooks, anywhere, everywhere. Hi, this is Cheryl Arkell from the Better Reading Podcast, stories behind the story. We talk to authors about how they came to tell us their story. Preston, welcome to Better Reading. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me in. Hey, listen, there's a couple of things we have in common. I don't know if you know this, but I'm going to tell you. I love food and I love cooking. Yes. Lebanese Australian, so I grew up. Oh, nice. Yeah, I've been cooking since I was nine. Favourite dish your mother made you? Tabbouleh. No, why? That's really interesting. Why tabbouleh? I would have thought it'd be something. Um, often, normally it's something protein based, but that's really interesting. You choose a, uh, a salad. I just love it so much. But because the other it's thing fresh is, and yeah, crisp and yeah, driven by the parsley and the salad. And mashi wadanib, the vine leaves, the stuffed vine leaves. Yeah, okay. Mashi is really. Yeah. I, I was Malakia, you know, Malakia fans, slimy no, Malakia. No, no, no. Uh, Shabishly, the the yeah. Yeah, sweet, the cheese and yeah. semolina. What about what about um what about what surely chicken and almond rice? Oh yeah, I make that all the time. Isn't that, isn't the surely that's isn't that I nice? made that for Ottolini. Kebab, love kebab. Yeah, yeah. Kibina. Kibinaya is my favourite. Is that your favourite as well? Yeah. So you, you so so what you're doing is you've you've taken you've taken the Lebanese cookbook and you've just gone find me the fresh yeah the fresh bright stuff and but you, I I'm eat, doing that is, which is yeah. great. you need everything else but yeah thing, you, you the two things you pick are very Australian in terms yeah. of lots of acid lots of freshness lots yeah. of crispness. There's two things I'm just going to tell you these stories and that's what yeah. before we start with what have we got in common the reason why I love tabbouleh so much is because it was always fresh and she made it for mm. us and six kids, two adults, eight people. Can you imagine cooking mm. that every mm. night? But anyway, mm. I she was so proactive, very religious, mm-hmm. Christian, always at the church at St. Bridget's at Maryville. One day I was walking through with a friend of mine as teenagers, right? Yeah. And there was a Lebanese food stall and I stopped and I bought some food from the, yeah. the, the fate. And I said to whoever I was with at the time, I said, oh my God, this tastes like my mother's cooking. It is yeah. so fantastic. Anyway, we walked home because we lived in Marrickville. We walked home and I said to my mother, you're never going to believe it. There's this fantastic stall and who supplied the food? No. It was her. <laughs> no, how brilliant. But that shows, shows, your, yeah. shows your palate was on point, if you can oh, identify boy. it. I'm good like that. But the, the vine leaf story, I will tell you, we were very poor. We immigrated. Mm. I was born here, but, you know, there were six of us and and I think that's where my love of food comes from. We came to a butcher in Redfern, mm. right? And we lived upstairs. His name was Antoine Andlof. Yeah. made the best Lebanese sausages ever. But he used to, well, minimal rent, I think it was. One room, one kitchenette, one bathroom. Right. And you would live in it as a family until yeah. you found your feet, right? Yeah, 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 sure. But we found our feet in Glebe in a corner shop, right? That's where my parents ended up. And my mother used to ask neighbours for their vine leaves because they'd have vines and they wouldn't know what to do with them, right? Like all those vine leaves. So we'd have to go up there, knock on the door, right? Say, can ask I come if, yeah, yeah, can I take it? And then the next day we would take them 
a bowl of, stu- of vine leaves. She would give back by giving them the actual masha. Which they would have loved. I mean, I just love that. Yeah, I but, love that so much. But I think that, that that's a fascinating thing when people come here from another place. And I remember going down to Lakemba and, and getting yeah. involved in a very, a very surprisingly collegiate conversation between a radical Muslim cleric mm-hmm. and a very conservative Lebanese business gentleman. Mm-hmm. And it was about, and they were discussing the perfect way to make kippah. And, yeah. and it was a beautiful conversation. <laughs> two, people who, two people who would probably, in any other have nothing else in common. Come but when it, when it came to the food that their mothers had cooked for them or their fathers had cooked for them, they were really passionate and they were energizing with each other. And it's yeah. like, you know, it's such a, it's such a, it terrible cliche, people. but... Um, it is, and it know, brings people can, together. Yeah, food definitely brings people together. Okay, so the other thing we, we have mm. in common is we're both big mouths. Yes, I know that. Yeah. So I get myself into a lot of trouble all of the time. Mm-hmm. So I'm hoping this podcast won't get me into Do, trouble. Is that, is that because you don't have a filter? Uh, no, I think... No, I'm good. I can pick the I can pick the mood in a room. Right. I don't have Tourette's or anything like that. And I feel as though I've got a filter, but I have no fear... And I like I've I've got a really I wear my heart on my sleeve, hmm. but I do like to sound things out to say things that are people are too afraid to say sometimes. Sure, and that's and that's a very it's a very tricky thing it to do now because of context yeah. more than anything else because everything comes becomes out of context and and people are not taking them. also half the time people aren't listening. Yeah. And they just and they, well, they, they hear care. a bit of it. Or they, they hear a bit of it and they go, "She must be saying that, or he yeah. must be saying this," and they fire off on that yeah, basis. Yeah, so yeah. it's really, it's a real challenge that this kind of this this engage in debate mm-hmm. and have debate. Great mm-hmm. to just. I mean, I've I've done radio where I've had someone on talking about the performance of politicians through the years mm. and as this person has said stuff he's being berated by the left and the right mm. for being an apologist for one side or the other mm. and you go but he said the same thing but mm. you he said one thing and both sides have read it as the, the exact the antithesis of what the other side's read how can that be but that's because we're not listening we're not really thinking we're just firing off we're, we're hearing what we expect to hear and then we're and then we're already in an angry state we ah. mm. And, you know, I think I'm always warned about speaking to different people or having different people on the podcast. I try to mix it up and say, oh, be careful, be careful. You know, you'll polarise people. Well, I couldn't care less. That I couldn't care less about. Yeah, I think that's – and I think that's – I mean, I think your your, your job is is to – Mm. is to bring interesting stories. It doesn't mm. really matter where they're from. And sometimes those stories are going to be confronting stories. Yeah, so and they're going to be but, but people are funny about people mm. are funny about that kind of confronting, you know, because mm. you, people come to your podcast, some may just want to laugh. Some may just want something to listen to with their cup of tea. They're having it at mm. four o'clock before they get stuck into dinner. And, mm. and some are coming because they want a, a mm. in-depth conversation. So again, how people come to you and the mood they're in. It's like people going to restaurants. Mm. You can't change. Mm. You can't change the mood when they walk in mm. you can you can shift it over time when they listen you can make them feel comfortable but but if, if they're coming if they're coming grumpy and angry mm. tricky you know I mean we're in difficult times at the moment and we'll mark that but I I'm kind of very pro humanity and I'm really vocal about it and I have been and I had friends around for dinner d friends the other day because everybody congregates at my place because mm. they like the food and no one brought it up not one person. And every one of them would have seen my Instagram. Every one of them knows how I feel about it. Yeah. And it's not... And you know what? Big Mouth shut up that night. I thought, you know what? I'm not going to go there. But it's but it's interesting because there are certain things that we're, we're 
trained from pretty much every mm. cultural background. Mm. We're trained not to talk about certain things. Mm. And that's why sport has such a big mm. role in the Australian society for so many people because you can talk about that. But discussing See, I, religion, something you can't talk about. But but, it, but which all the, and in, and in mm. England it'll be the weather, mm. and that you know, and that you mm. you don't talk about religion, you don't mm. talk about politics, mm. and, you, and you probably don't. And prehistoric, you probably didn't discuss what your friends all did in the bedroom. Mm. You know, they were the three areas that were kind mm. of almost taboo. And so, mm. and so, you know, we 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 develop a certain range of safe places that we, we can do. discuss. We do. Foods another safe yeah. place we can discuss. Okay, let me introduce. Matt Preston is an award-winning food journalist, radio presenter and international TV personality. With over 11 seasons on MasterChef Australia, Matt reached an audience of more than 180 million people across 110 countries. My God, you're a show-off. He has published... Uh, no, I, I'm not a show-off. I have, I have other people to show-off for me. And that's much... That seems to be... I could never I could never read that out myself. I, read that, I would have edited that bit out because it sounds so ridiculous, doesn't it? But it's So true. ridiculous. He has been published... Oh, he has published eight best-selling cookbooks, including Matt Preston's World of Flavour. Now he opens up about himself for the first time with his memoir, Big Mouth. Like Matt himself, it is a joyous, funny and larger-than-life book. And it really is. Okay, I want to start with where you grew up and sure. how you came to be Matt Preston. Oh, gee, well, I didn't... I mean, you know, becoming Matt Preston is, <laughs> I think, for most people, is that moment when they see on TV. Yeah. So, and that's not Matt Preston because no. that's the that's the 10% that gets amplified of anyone who goes on telly. Mm. So you find that people are, are very different when you meet them afterwards. I tend to find that TV tends to amplify people it tends to make them better versions of they are because mm. it because they, because they're, they're scrutiny and so they behave well there's a tiny That's group good. tiny group that, yeah. that makes them worse and then you just you share with your friends who they are and with other people in the industry and then you and, and then you make sure you don't have to, have to work with them so i think in terms of the, the matt preston everyone knows is undoubtedly the matt preston of 11 seasons on MasterChef. maybe maybe that that's been that's been twisted slightly by you know by, by taking on stuff that I have no natural aptitude for. Food's a comfortable space. I, mean, I, know, I know my way around that. I've been doing it for a long time. But, you know, finding myself a mass Singer, finding myself on, um, on Dance with the Stars, very different. And, and oh, so did that, you do that? Yeah, I did both Was those. that hard? Dance with the Stars was really hard. Oh, yeah, yeah, really hard because you're training for five hours a day, seven days a week. Wow. And and also because you because you don't understand the language, it's a different area. Yeah. It's like like me trying to tell someone how to write a review. It's like mm. you know, there's so many different mm. steps that are, you intrinsically know um, that that you have to learn. Were so, you yeah, a good dancer? No, I'm, I'm a great three a.m. in the morning dancer. I'm a great uh, <laughs> I'm the last one on the last floor. But 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 ballroom is very different. And it's very <laughs> it's very meticulous and it's very structured and the rules are very firm. Yeah, you know, this stuff. So, but did I enjoy it? I had the best. I had such a good time. I'm still dancing with my dance partner oh, from really? the show. So we dance twice dancing, a week. I, I mean, I'm hopeless. I've got no rhythm whatsoever, but I do love watching it. And I think it can only make you happy. Or, or, or allow sore. you to, to let go. Or sore. <laughs> or, or allow yourself to let, let go because you have to forget everything yeah. else. You're just concentrating. And it's like golf and some people, you know, there's a therapeutic um, kind of almost meditative quality. I also think the other thing about it is, and this is one of those things as I've got older, I've become yeah. more and more 
just you, you give stuff a go. Yeah. And and if you're no good at it, it doesn't matter because the worst thing someone can say is you're no good at it, and that's true. So it really mm. doesn't hurt. There's no humiliation there. But you know, if you, but if you do it and you get some joy out of it, then how fantastic is mm. that? I took uh, up um, boxing. Oh um, yeah. No, and, and what did? And why did you take up boxing? Did you uh, just, during COVID. Right, so I yep. thought because you could do it in the park, and so I got a sure. trainer and did it in the park. And, and so I don't how know. Did that, how did that feel when you when you landed that first punch? We actually felt your weight go through the punch, and you go. That's what he's been talking about. That's what she's been talking mm. about. That's a good moment. Mm, Even is. though you're never going to fight for a heavyweight championship. That's where I was going. I think my stamina is better, definitely. But my technique, I reckon I'm still as hopeless but, as I was but, four but, years but, ago. But, but the whole point about it is you're better and you're getting joy out of it. And, and I think fun. And I think this fun. this whole idea, I think there's this this strange attitude people have about if I'm going to do something, I need to be amazing at it. And the answer is, well, you're, probably, no. you're not going to make the Olympics. Yeah. You know, you're not going to be a legend. But, but if you get joy out of it and if you try something new, the satisfaction of climbing small hills when, when you're starting on the... Is, is, that's it's a, it's a hill. I'm on oh, a hill, yeah. and I think that whole idea about and, and I'm trying to explain to people. The, and the best way I found is think about golf. Think about how many terrible golf players there are out there, a terrible tennis player there who play every week because they love mm-hmm. it so much. Mm-hmm. And it's just you don't need to be great at stuff. I'll tell to be, you something else. I'll tell you something else. I've been swimming almost all my life. Right. Like I was at a weird Lebanese background. Yep. My father took us to Coogee Beach, just right. threw us in the water, and that's how we learned to swim. So I've been lapping for almost every single right. day. I'm still. <laughs> the slowest person in the pool. Okay, well, can okay. I? So, okay, well, this is interesting because I, I, I love swimming as well. I love it. I'm not very good at it. We got a lot I, in common. I recently, I recently with um, two Greek friends and two Italian friends and the woman I love, we went down to our local pool where there's a legend called Bucky who trains, and we had training sessions with her, uh, and it was really good. Stroke because correction. Stroke correction, and suddenly it became half. It's like skiing. Yes, you know, when you you're fighting your way down the scope, it's really hard but you get the straight you get a little bit longer a little bit oh my gosh what a difference so so but that moment for me you know that was mm-hmm. like that was 50 bucks well spent i went oh, oh my oh my gosh and then yeah. i was swimming i was swimming in in the in this uh, the, the water in the harbor to, uh, yesterday it's like gee that feels mm. so much better mm. so i think maybe i need to do that 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 we talk a lot about mindfulness and we talk about this idea of of moving from being a conscious incompetent into being <laughs> The four stages of knowledge. You start with being an unconscious incompetent. You don't know how bad you are. You then become um, you then become a conscious incompetent. You know how bad you are. Yeah, then, you I'm become, there. then the next step is to become a conscious competent. You go, wow, oh, my stamina is better now. And, yeah. and, then, and then finally is the unconscious competent where you, you're just doing it and it's, it's easy. I live in San Francisco for three right. months of the year and I swim there. I mean, the weather's appalling. I'm only ever there in winter. But anyway, I so swim. So whereabouts are you? Knob Hill? Whereabouts are you? I'm in the Mission. Oh, lovely. I rent the same very house nice. every very time. Nice. Very yep. nice. And it's a 35-minute walk to the pool. And uh, I'm the slowest at the, over there as I am here. And one time when I was there, this was last year, this guy came and he had no legs and he jumped yep. in the pool. And I thought, you know, I don't know if this is PC, but I did feel, oh, well, at least there'll be one person <laughs> that I can beat in the pool. No. Yeah. He beat me hands down. Yeah. Every he was in the fast lane, so, and he was oh, he was a fantastic swimmer. So, so you've never been tempted to do the Alcatraz? There's a famous swim you can do, open water swim, which is the Alcatraz swim, where you swim over from oh, Alcatraz. No. Oh, I couldn't. No, do that. Well, oh, I'd be too, too sharky. Oh yeah, too scared. Too sharky. Too yeah. scared. Have you done it? No, no. A friend of no. mine done it. Said so it was amazing. Yeah. Anyway, I oh, yeah, too sharky. 
go back. I want to know where you grew up. I grew up. I grew up in London. Um, I grew up in a, a the borders between Chelsea and Fulham in London. Whoa, so gosh. so Chelsea, obviously. So that's around the corner from where punk started. Around the corner from where there were a lot of you know trendy boutiques. Uh, Kings Road was kind of like the other great uh, hippie territory, along with you know Carnaby Street for mods, and then it moved out to to that. But the area I grew up was a place called World's End, which was aptly named because it was it, it was I grew up behind a, a a brewery where the sound was big brown bottles rattling around in wooden crates and all the workers wearing clogs and the sound of breaking glass and the sound of grass being, glass being ground into the concrete of, of the, the loading yard underneath the wooden clog. Um, so that, that's where I grew up. It was, um, it was one of those kind of borderline areas. You know, famous because it's also where the Rolling Stones, when they started, they used to live. That's where Keith Richards wow. lived in a basement flat with Mick Jagger, and Keith slept in the bath because there was no bed for him. So it was kind of a, it was kind of a, it was kind of a netherworldy place. And then I, then I moved down the road into, into what was a big Irish Polish Catholic community around uh, Fulham Broadway, and I lived there and I grew up there until I moved to Australia in 1993. And why did you move to Australia? I had an Australian girlfriend, and the um, the question was, the question was, shall we get married or do you want to come? live in my country so I didn't want to get married so I was stuck with coming here so yeah. I thought I can't come here I come to Australia for a year I'll see how it goes and then um and then I'll go back doesn't wait to go back and mm. I I arrived on we'd been on a couple of visits prior so I knew I was, knew what the country we arrived on uh, Derby Day um, 30 years ago exactly in Melbourne in Melbourne yeah mm. got off got off the plane put a suit on went straight out to the track and saw all the Australians that I'd met over the years from Sydney and Melbourne who all seemed to be at the racetrack for Derby Day um, which, which, is a, which is a brilliant which is a brilliant introduction gives me a really it's that wonderful thing I reckon you become but you start becoming sentient about two probably so that means that I've spent half my sentient life exactly mm. in London and half in Australia so it was a good time to write the memoir I want to talk about cultural identity then. So do you mm. feel English or do you feel Australian? What do you dream in, do you think? That's a really good... I will talk to you in something that a friend of mine who's South African said, you realise when you become part of the, your new home when you can name more of the Australian team than your home team. <laughs> and so for me, that happened That that happened in a, the last British Lions tour. And I went, I, you know, I've been drinking with, I've been drinking with these two Wallabies players and I can name the whole team and I can name, I don't know, a quarter of the, of the, the Lions team. So I'm, I'm Australian now. And, I, and that was it. That, that was it. So now, so now I'm very much identify myself as, as Australian. I, I think, again, I probably identify myself as, um, I don't identify myself as English. I, I identify myself as being from West London. Yeah. You know, that's where I brought up my, yeah. that's very much the, mm. the you know, the football team. Because you've got team. a mild accent still. Um, it's it, mild. Yes, it's, it's mild, but it's still there. And, yeah. and when I when I go back, it'll get thicker. Yeah. So, so but but then also I've got, you know, I've got, I've got ancestors that are American. I've got ancestors mm. that are Irish. I've got ancestors that were born in Italy. Other ones that were born in, in India. So there's a whole range of, there's a whole range of different things. So I'm, I'm you know, like so many of us, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a mutt. But yeah, no, I always say London the mother, Melbourne the wife. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I, I love my mum, wouldn't want to live with her. No. And, and, and Melbourne's the place where I've decided to spend the rest of my so life. So Melbourne's the lover. Oh, no, I say Sydney might be the lover. Sydney's the oh, mistress. Right. Oh, because you come up here for four days, you have a really good time. You know what I mean? <laughs> but, but again, I but do it, that but in it, Melbourne. It, I go down there and have and a think, really good time. And I think that, that that's, a, I mean, that's, yeah. a, that's a beautiful thing where, you know, the cities are so, uh, are all 
everyone in, in Australia. Whether I love Brisbane, I love Adelaide, um, I love Sydney, I love Perth. I don't buy into this this strange competition between states because I still oh, think for absolutely. lots of people it feels a bit like five countries. Mm. I know. I, I think I can't think of there's. I think that that's one of the great joys. And again, do you know, you I do that when I, I'm in Melbourne, um, and which I haven't been for a while now, but, you know, I'm in a taxi and they say, where are you from? I don't engage in that. Do you know where I say? I say Lebanon. Because I don't want to say Sydney. Because then you get into this thing, you know. Oh, and you know, yeah, Melbourne's. Yeah. What do you think, Melbourne better yeah. than Sydney? Blah blah yeah, blah. Yeah, yeah, you know, I'll be anywhere where my family is. I'll be in Timbuktu. If my family's there, that's where I'll be. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Yeah, you see, well, 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 you see, I have the advantage of the taxi. I just ask the taxi driver, where, where should I eat? And that, and that, and that gets around the whole thing. I guess I'm, you know, I say, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm from Melbourne. Where should I eat? And then, yeah. then, then, then we're back in learning some valuable stuff, which is what okay. it's about. How did we come to food? Were you cooking um, at a young age? Yeah, I, I cooked about my first, I cooked my first, wrote my first recipe when I was seven. My mum, <gasps> before she died, gave me the, the the little enamel bowl that I cooked in. Is she, it was, terrible. was she a good now, cook? Um, she was a, she was a, she was a good cook, but like a lot of cooks of her generation, she had a roster a repertoire of maybe nine, eight, nine dishes that were on rotation, and it was mm. just a matter whether you know whether chops and peas was going to be on Tuesday or Thursday, and risotto mm. was on Wednesday or Friday, and if, because Friday was a fish day, um, so yeah, she was she was a good cook, and then and my grand one, one grandmother was a terrible cook, one grandmother was a great cook. And then I, I mean, always enjoyed, always enjoyed eating. Always a greedy child. I'm not necessarily fancy fine dining until maybe much later on when I started uh, dating Ginger, the, that first Australian girlfriend who was really massively into food. But then I, I had that Cinderella moment, and my life's full of these Cinderella moments where, where, where someone goes, "I'm starting a new magazine. I know you cook. I know you like to eat. How do you feel about writing a restaurant review for us every week?" So it was like I've been paid for the previous six years to. Um, watch Neighbours and Home and Away, so watch telly for a living. Mm-hmm. Um, I thought, well, like, what, why don't I get paid for eating out with my mates? Yeah. So I said, well, can I, you know, can I do, I want to take my mates. I might, I don't just want to go with two people. And maybe if I go with four, we can, we'll split, you'll pay for two and, and I'll pay for the other two and we'll, we'll work it out. So the, it reflects the experience of like you. If you're going to go to an Indian restaurant, you're probably going to go with a mob of people yeah. rather than just a romantic dinner. Yeah. So I want to go with the mob of people I want to go with. We get a much more realistic experience. If it's a romantic place, I want to go with the woman I love, um, and that'll be too. So that that was an amazing start. And then from that, I just I learned, you know, again started with this attitude that you need to entertain first, then inform, uh, and then be fair. But uh, but it's it's all about you writing for the. 
you're writing for the the reader mm-hmm. and not for the restaurant. Mm-hmm. So it's about trying. I want you to get a sense that this is a place you want to spend your money. Mm-hmm. And and the great review, the great review is a place where you want to spend your money, but it's not a place where where someone from your office wants to spend the money. You go, I must go there, and she goes, I don't want to go there. Mm-hmm. And I think that that that's the art because you know some people want a relaxed family service. Some people find that's too casual; it freaks mm-hmm. them out. Some people want a place with buzz and atmosphere. For other people, that buzz and atmosphere translates at noisy and they can't hear what their, their guests are saying. So again, that that's the subtlety of reviewing. Mm. You're always trying to match people to an experience they'll love. And it's also what you feel like that night. You know, sometimes you just Yeah, there, oh, there, there's absolutely yeah. what absolutely what, what you feel like. And certainly as we get older, we can become more more particular about and there are also nights when we feel like, you know, we want to be adventurous or we don't mm. want to be we just want to go have something that, that's reassuring. And that's mm. especially been the case, you know, over the last few years there's been a real every so often when something bad happens, you see that people go back to lasagna during the COVID times. Mm. Post 9-11, it was all going back to American, American solid stuff as well. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I was um, in Tasmania last week and I had been to the agrarian kitchen. Yeah, amazing. Rodney amazing, Dunn. yeah, yeah. And had a wonderful a la carte meal years ago, mm. so it was pre-COVID. Anyway, I didn't have a reservation this trip and I thought, well, you know, I'm just, I had hired a car, I'll go and see. I was on my own. You went all that way out there on a whim that you might be able to get in. Mm. Anyway, so I went to, I got in there and uh, she said, well, the menu's changed and it's $150 for a degustation. And that has to be my least favourite word ever. I just, it's not the way I eat, right? I'm Lebanese. We Mm. don't do that. Anyway, and I thought, no, no, I just hate, I hate those kind of bits, you know, five courses, blah, blah, blah. So I said, no, I think I'll say no. And she said, oh, we do have a table. No. Anyway, got to my car and thought, are you crazy? When are you going to come back here? Why don't you come? So I went back in there. <laughs> I enjoyed it thoroughly, but I felt that I had to earn it out. So I had to not eat for the next couple of days until I earned out the one hundred and fifty. That's well, that, and I think that's. But then, but then you could easy. You could go to you could go to a restaurant in Sydney. and You could spend that money and have yes. you know and have three courses and and again that something like I mean that's what's so great about uh, the agrarian kitchen. You know, I love it. Is this whole thing about where it is? Yeah. The old building it's in. Yeah. The the fact that the old exercise yard where it is is. Now now turn into a wall kitchen garden. Yeah. I mean, so you're you're not just buying the food. You're it's buying that vision. You're buying the fact that the, the food's been grown there. Mm. And I always, you know, it's that same thing as when you buy a wine. If it, you're going to spend double the amount for a wine or a coffee that's estate grown. Yeah. And also you taste the difference. Okay. So you're reviewing food. And yeah. when do you start cooking food? Oh, no. So I'm, I'm started cooking all the way from. I mean, the, you never that, stop. No, no. I, you know, I, it's self preservation. Yeah. Really. You, um, uh, so I've, I, and always, you know, from, a, from, I suppose that period when I moved in with my first girlfriend, who was the Australian who I moved to Australia with, and she was like, oh, I don't cook. I don't know how to cook. Yeah. I don't, you've got to do all the cooking. So I had to do all the cooking. So I did all the cooking with her, with her for five years. Um, so that was great. She was, there's a fair bit in the book about um, her disapproval of peasant food, like yes. shepherd's pie, which I love. I love, um, love. And, and again, but, and then again, there was some experience. But I was cooking at university. I was cooking with my friends at university. I was experimenting and doing stupid things like seeing what would happen if you dyed mashed potato blue and then it's disgusting, even though, even though it tastes <laughs> the same. It, it, looks, it looks that color. It doesn't work. Um, and, then, and then, of course, we moved here. We split up. I split up with that Australian girl and then about a year later um, we're still friends she invites me around for lunch she cooks this beautiful lunch for me and my new girlfriend and it's like what could you cook 
And she went, yeah, for five years. Yeah, you cooked yeah. for me and it was amazing. And I didn't cook at all. That's so unfair. Yeah. And I, I said, well, maybe that, that's probably a proof of why the relationship wasn't a good one. Yeah. Do you know, um, through those early days when I was in my 20s, I was cooking and I was mm. entertaining. I've always had people around. One point I had this really, t- I lived in a tiny apartment in Surrey Hills, like I think it was 45 square metres. And every year I would run a long table from yeah. the front door to the right. end and cook for 20. But this was a moment in my life, and you'll appreciate this. I was fussing around in the kitchen. I had people around and my friend Bernard was like there and I'm like, I can't talk to anybody. I've just got to get this this yes, done. Yeah. And he said, do you know what, Cheryl? He said, we don't come here to have restaurant food. He said, we go to a restaurant to have restaurant food. When we come here, we just want your food. And do you know, things turned around for me then. Yeah, and I think that's the kind of that, that... Isn't that, that a it, moment? But I think that's also the same thing with restaurants as well. You know, yes. there's a great, great cook. And his, his great line to me was, it's not about the food on the table. It's about the eyes across the table. That's yeah. what matters. And what great restaurants... I mean, there's a tiny, tiny number that are like going to going to church, going yeah. to... Going to Fat going, Duck, I've been there. Yeah, that, those kind of places where they yeah. gastro. But I'd say Fat Duck is you'll still laugh at Fat Duck and it's funny and it's joyous. But uh, there, there are a lot of gastro temples. There are a small number of gastro temples where it's all about the food. But most of the time it's about the people you're with. Yes. And what you really want is an absence of negative. You want, you know, if you get okay service, okay food, and the, the atmosphere is okay, you'll have a great time with your mates. And yeah. that's what eating is about. It's yeah. about going out, going out with your mates um, and, is, and enjoying all your family and enjoying that moment. That it doesn't need to be, you know, and that's why I think with, when you mention the word degustation, I can see the hackles go up in the back of your neck. Oh. It's because invariably that comes with, you know, a description about the wine that you've got Ugh. that takes 15 minutes while the food's going in front of you and all those mm. negative things rather mm. than that joyous moment. And still the best service I've ever had, sitting in a pub, famous for doing schnitzels. We'd all had schnitzels and we didn't know we were really full. The schnitzels were as, were as you know, size of a toddler's head, freaking gigantic. <laughs> Delicious, and and the waitress, and she would have been a yeah, she would have been a grandma, you know. D- d- and she just wandered over, and she just whispered, and she just went, "Apple crumble with custard," <laughs> and that was it. And was yeah. like, well, I went, "Yeah, I don't know." So, so again, it doesn't have to be fancy to be joyous, to be memorable, no. to to enhance the experience of the people you're with. I did a roast chicken dinner last night. I have these friends that love coming over mm-hmm. for a roast chicken. And, you know, this is the first time I've done this. I made rice pudding. Because, you know, you put it in the on mm-hmm. the rack below... And you you made you made you made uh, Emirati Mandy 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 chicken yeah, yeah. We, we put the chicken on the rack oh, the, you so you grease the rack chicken on the rack pot of the rice underneath oh no juices no juices no. drop I down made... into the into the into the pot underneath no love oh my that. gosh this is what you need to do this yeah. is next level this is Emirati so the Emirati's cooked chicken and it's all the juices in the rice but anyway your turn yeah. Cheryl. No, no, I, but no, I made a rice pudding like sweet rice pudding. Right. Oh, okay. I didn't go down well. Why not? What People you... said this was breakfast food. Oh, I loved it. And where where were they from? Australia. Were, they were they were Spanish Australia because absolutely right. Spain rice puddings absolutely. You know, congee. You know, there are lots of cultures mm-hmm. that do see rice as as breakfast food. I, I don't. Loved was it, it was it runny or was it baked and didn't have a, a lovely crust on it? 
Yeah, it had that, and I'd put oh. some cardamom and rose water in, and I served it. Oh, so it it's, it's passam. It's like, like yeah. yeah, it's like yeah, Indian yeah. style. And I served it with some roasted, um, crushed um, walnuts. Oh, yeah, man, well, I loved it. Well, so, you know, and then she said breakfast food. So you know what I did? Gave it to them to take them for breakfast. Yeah, and I had some this morning and, for and, breakfast. And look, I'm, my, my, the Boxing Day tradition is handed down from my dad, um, yeah. was, is, you know, is... Christmas pudding fried on Boxing Day, but he also used to like last night's rice pudding cut into a slab, Yum. fried with a little bit of cinnamon and brown sugar over the top just to count. Oh my gosh, how delicious. How delicious. delicious. Okay, so you've been writing cookbooks, of which I have a number of them. Yes, thank you. Tell me what, why a memoir? Why now? Well, I think that's a number of things, right? I think you want to avoid doing a memoir when you're cashing in on a certain uh, notoriety or familiarity. So, mm-hmm. and Two, you need time mm-hmm. because it takes a long time to mm-hmm. write. This is this was a yeah. two, two and a half year process. Three, my mother was diagnosed with the blood cancer onset, oh, early sorry. onset, on, early onset dementia and mm. Parkinson's at the same time. So like a kind of a trifecta. So you're kind of going, well, that limits the time I've got to talk to her. So mm-hmm. that so that was really important. Thirty year anniversary was was right. and also I think it's that you know I, I become conscious having written this book and in the conversation when I've been doing the book to other people about about their families and mm. the secrets that mm. they their family keep hidden and the the damaging effect that mm. can have and that kind of the cathartic nature of talking about stuff and and I just wanted to be in a situation where I could talk about all these things and all my children find it at the same time. Um, all my friends know. It has prompted so many conversations with people mm. telling me stuff that of stuff that they found painful. They don't want to share with anyone else. They haven't mm. ever, and then they they share it with you. And mm. there's this wonderful moment where you can see like a weight lift off their shoulders. Mm. Did a, you worry about what people like your kids might think of it? No, um, no, I didn't because I talked them I talked them through it. But mm. yes, I mean absolutely. But I think you worry about everything because you worry about most of when we talk about failure. Uh, and we talk about, and you know, and that's failure, personal failure, or, or failures mm. that are imposed upon you by by circumstances. We tend to go, oh, how humiliating is that? Mm. And the and the answer is, well, you know, you know, dancing. This goes back to doing things like masking and dancing. Stuff. It, why is it humiliating? Because mm. it not wasn't your fault. So why don't you share it? And invariably, when people talk about things that they think you oh, can't tell anyone, it's humiliating. When you actually share it, mostly you'll find support. Mm. Vulnerability gets greeted with, with support. Mm. It's arrogance that tends to get greeted with negativity. So mm. so I think that that wonderful time, you're still going to bear the pain of it. But I also think as well that you need to, one of the hard things about writing the book is interrogating yourself to make sure you're being authentic. authentic. Now you Obviously, you read a lot. I read a lot. I've read lots and lots of memoirs. Some good, some terrible. But there's a certain there's a certain knee jerk reaction you're exposed to say about certain situations. And and my job was to you know I found myself writing that mm-hmm. and then going back saying, well, did I really feel like that? Mm-hmm. You know, I, I grew up the first five years without, without a dad. Did I feel that there was a dad-sized hole in my life that I needed to search out and fill and reconnect with? No, because I knew no better. Whereas I know my friends who whose fathers died when they were either nine or fifteen, that was a huge, mm-hmm. huge negative negative impact on them, and they really struggled with that. And they did try and fill that gap in many mm-hmm. different ways. So I feel myself lucky that I didn't 
have what they go through. Mm. Which Brian is kind of, Brown was here the other day. Oh, yeah, sure. Up, yep. Yeah, single. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, that's, I yeah. saw that. I, I, and I saw he him said that. to me, no, well, it was just the way it was. And, and that's exactly the line. Yeah. It was, it's exactly right. It's just the way it was. And I think I think a lot of that, I think a lot of that is, is different. I mean, I think you, it doesn't clear that in certain cases, in terms of those cases where you're lucky, Mm-hmm. Right, as I was lucky. So my mother, my mother got to we got to keep me, the um the or kept me the, my my she got support from both um, my natural father's mum and her own mother. So and so there was all that support mm-hmm. and all that stuff. That's very positive, mm-hmm. because part of the the thing about the book, and I start by talking about my relationship with my grandmothers, like in both cases, they were carrying their own, hiding their own family scandals in terms of one of them gave up her child when she got pregnant very early on. Um, she gave that child up for fostering. Mm. And the and the other grandmother had a termination. Mm. So so when they come to that process where their son stroke daughter is carrying, you know, is an unwed mother carrying a child, that experience and that process undoubtedly plays in to how they deal with that that conversation. Mm. So so I'm very conscious of writing the book, you become very conscious of of well, there were three options my mother had and mm. two of them would mean that either I you know, either I wasn't here or, you know, I could be, you know, fostered to a family, as happened to my stepdad, who was fostered out in this terrible scheme where they emptied the orphanage and the foster homes in the UK and sent kids without telling their parents, sent them off to Canada, South Africa and Australia to work on farms, to be in children's homes. Terrible, terrible, terrible. And treated. And, t- and treated, well, you know, treated absolutely terribly. And it was a, it's a real, another one of those kind of things mm. you see a real, a real stain on there. And then from mm. his perspective, his perspective, he was told by his foster mother that his mother was dead, even though letters were coming from her that found their way through the kind of the government departments were being sent out. So, mm. so then he reconnects with his mother. He reconnects with his mother age. 23 I had my mother that whole period so mm. I think there's that thing where you get a you do get a sense of perspective on your own life when you talk to other people mm. and you look back at your life and you see it's so much better that's so much better um, Jane Cadso from the Good Weekend interviewed me um, mm. a few months ago about memoir I don't know if you saw it and it was published a couple of weeks ago and I, I'm fanatical I just love it I love yeah. to read other people's stories I love non-fiction but it made me think she made me think about why I loved it Right, mm. and I think the reason I love it is because I do need to hear other people's experience. And when my mother had, um, she died eighteen mm. months ago now, and she had dementia. Sorry. And I was in that last week. I, you know, we had shifts, the family, and sure. I had the the early morning shift. And I devoured memoirs because mm. there was a life lived. There yeah. was a life living. And I needed to know how other people were living, and that gave it gave me great comfort. I think and, memoir does that. And I think, I don't think, but I think also that you know I'm in that lucky situation of going that through the, with my mother and writing the memoir as I'm doing that, allowing me to appreciate, mm. allowing me to find all those other papers. You're saying, have a read of this, have mm. a look at that. I think the interesting thing about memoir is this is and this idea about authenticity is interesting. Is that when you actually start looking at memoirs, most aren't written by the person. Mm, well, yeah, they're, they're they're written by a ghost. Yeah, and that's a very different experience, yeah. right? Yeah. That's a because there's not yeah. the same interrogation. There's no. not the same holding yourself to account. And and I, and look, I love great ghost writing. Sure. makes a great entertaining reading. Good story, but but I don't think it. I I think it lacks some of the, it lacks some of the rawness mm-hmm. because, 
admitting to yourself as you're writing stuff is a form of acceptance, whereas I think reading something that someone else has written about you mm. is much easier to edit out and mm. remove. So I think you I think you have to be a lot more brutal when you write it yourself. Mm. So that's definitely something now that I've learned from writing my own memoir is that actually I now look at who's written it. And, you know, if it's a, if it's a lightweight, joy, you know, football, football hero story, then that's different. But in terms of best memoirs ever written for example Andre Agassi's Open that's written mm. by a ghostwriter yeah, it but, is. but it is but it's a but it's a great read but I just think there's something there's just that something being able to hear the actual voice mm-hmm. rather than th- knowing that everything's gone through a, 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 a another pair of hands another brain mm. I think that that maybe changes the experience it removes them slightly from you mm. okay we're almost out of time so I'm going to ask you what's your favourite meal <laughs> favourite meal mm-hmm. pizza Sushi, but pizza, pizza at night. Sushi in the daytime. Sushi, fresh, bright, light, delicious. Um, pizza. Well, it's just dough. You can put anything on it. Mm. And at this point, we can play with any flavour. I love that. It's got all the food groups uh, in one piece. Pepperoni is my favourite. Pepperoni, uh, cheese, tomato, mm. um, any chili, mm. chili oil. Yeah, love it. Yeah. What about cooking? What's your favourite thing to cook? Uh, well, pro- I've got friends coming around. I'll probably do a, a slow roasted lamb shoulder, and then oh. I'll do some do some hard salads. I'll I'll, I'll that that shoulder will get rubbed in a mix of mm. probably two parts coriander seed, one part cumin seed ground up, and then yogurt, um, roast beetroot, all that stuff to play with. I think easy, um, and and then it's that whole thing about every meal, you know, the lamb shoulder goes in four hours. It, it doesn't matter whether people are half an hour late or half an hour early. The salads are all done. Um, they're mostly hard salads, you know, frica or, mm. or or that beetroot salad. So they so you can either dress them at the time or you can dress them in advance, but they're basically done. And so you can just, when your friends arrive, enjoy your friends and just pull everything out. Mm. Love a meal like that. It's low maintenance, right? Yeah, well, and, and again, it's, well, it's like everything. Isn't it? you, you plan, you plan, plan to succeed and, and let the oven do the work. That's mm. a great joy. Mm. Aren't we lucky? Yeah, amazing. That we can cook. It yeah. is. It's amazing. Yeah, but, but anyone, but I mean, that old cliche, but anyone can cook. Putting a lamb shoulder in the oven ain't that hard. <laughs> it's you know, it's just, it's just a matter of getting, you know, the, the right heat and away you go. Making, you know, making a salad is just a matter of not, of basically taking own, no more than three ingredients and putting yeah. them together yeah, with, with a suitable dressing. So again, all these things are, all these things are easy. And, and, and again, it, you don't need to be doing a restaurant quality deal. Just that lamb shoulder pulled apart with some mint mm. jelly, some cucumber and some yogurt in flatbread. Mm. Favourite meat is lamb. Okay, Matt Preston, thank you so much for your time. Thank If you'd like more information about Better Reading, follow us on Facebook or visit betterreading.com.au. This podcast is proudly sponsored by Belinda Audio. Belinda Audiobooks are available on CD and MP3 from online booksellers and bookshops everywhere or you can download from Audible, Google Play or the iBookstore. We've also created our own app called BorrowBox that's available from both the App Store and Google Play. All you need to do to get it working is to download the app, join your local public library and you'll gain access to the world's best collection of e-books and e-audiobooks available for you to loan on your phone or your personal device. Belinda, we're here to enable you to escape Imagine, grow, and be inspired through the power of storytelling. Belinda Audiobooks. Anywhere, everywhere.
If you enjoyed this podcast, leave us a review and check out the other podcasts on the Better Reading Network.